One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there till he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. <clears throat> I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. It feels like quite a long time since I stood at the front here and, and, and shared from God's word with you. So thank you for that. It's, um, it's a real privilege. And one of quite suspense. It's actually quite a tense day today, isn't it? Because today is the last day of Premier League. And for those of you who will notice, I am a Leeds United fan. Thank you. Thank you. And it is a big day for Leeds United. Um, I can see a smirk from the Arsenal supporter sitting at the back there. But anyhow, <laughs> so it's a big day in the football world, but it's actually also a really, really big day in Ruth, isn't it? Can you imagine the tension and the suspense as Ruth steps, uh, steps through that story which is given to us um, <coughs> in chapter three there? And it reminds me of a time when maybe I had a very slightly similar suspense I can remember about 20 years ago, the terror of asking a young lady if she would marry me. And I didn't warn her I was going to use this. Uh, will she or won't she say yes? And the evidence is that she said yes. <laughs> um, will I look a fool? 
will I be ridiculed? And I've prayed about it. I've prayed about it again. And again. And again. Poor Ali, she's waiting. I've even asked God to do it for me. But I still have to take the step, don't I? I still have to trust in God's overruling power over that decision I'm making. I have to get on with it. And I put my best clothes on, and I even had a shower. And then comes a moment of truth. And I have to ask the question. I have to risk that entire sense of my self-worth. I have to allow myself to be at the mercy of someone else's potential rejection. And I think about Ruth in this chapter, and I think of this really powerful passage where she is going there in front of Boaz. Um, it's very different to my example, let's be, let's be honest. But I can, I can empathize with those feelings of tension, those feelings of being scared. But there's also in this passage a far greater message, isn't there? Bill has already gazumped me in that, in talking, <laughs> in talking about the message of redemption. Uh, which is in Ruth. And I just want us to rewind the story a little bit. So we are looking at Ruth chapter 3 today, I do promise you. But I do want to also just start back and just do a little run through some of chapter 1 and 2. Because I think there's a lot in there which, um, which leads us to understand chapter 3 to get today. So first of all, for those of you who don't know, I mean, Naomi and Ruth are both destitute. And they're childless widows. Uh, Naomi is old and she's beyond remarriage. She has nothing left. And she says she's deep in bitterness towards God. Um, chapter 1, verse 13 here. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So Naomi is saying how she feels that the Lord's hand has turned against her. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought great misfortune upon me. You feel the pain, you feel the depth where... Naomi finds herself. Meanwhile, despite Ruth being young and having the potential to remarry, she has chosen to remain with Naomi and has committed to God and his people. She was a Moabite. She will always be a Moabite. And as you look through Ruth, she's continuously referred to as a Moabite. But she has chosen to, to go with Ruth. And I love the way in which um, it says in Ruth um, about... Um, about how she made that decision. She says, and you just need to step back here, don't I? <laughs> there you go. Um, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What words, what powerful words from Ruth to Naomi, committing her allegiance to Naomi, committing her allegiance to Naomi's God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so we see this great contrast, really, between Ruth and Naomi. And throughout Ruth here, there's a message of God's sovereignty and his overruling hand, even in their despair and darkest moments. Here at the end of chapter 1, there is one more glimmer of providence. Because what it says, so that's gone on to chapter 2, but what it says at the end of chapter 1 is that um, when they went back to Bethlehem, it was harvest time. And isn't that 
quite amazing, really. They've gone, this lady who's in absolute despair, she's gone back to Bethlehem, and it's in harvest time. And what a small little glimmer of God's providence that is, that they arrive in Bethlehem at a time when they can glean in the fields, where they can try and scrape together a living, where they can find a way to engage with the people around them. And because, and, and in chapter 2, we learn how Ruth has gone on to glean that barley. So if we look in, in Ruth chapter 2, um, Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick, out, pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in, who I, in whose eyes I find favor. So Ruth goes into the fields and she starts gleaning, which was, of course, the, the rules set down uh, in the Old Testament for Israel for when, for when they were harvesting anything which fell off the sheaves of corn was to be left on the ground in the field. They weren't to pick up anything but the sheaves and the stalks themselves. And what was left on the ground was for the poor to be able to go and glean. So there was provision for the poor. And so Naomi was, um, so Ruth was finding herself in the fields here, uh, gleaning the, the barley. And then another bit of God's providence. And the, and the author of Ruth kind of points it out um, in quite a strange way. She happens to be gleaning in the field of a distant relative. So Ruth has gone to the fields around Bethlehem. She's gleaning um, a, a living for herself, and she happens to be doing it in the field of a distant relative. I think that the author of Ruth is making that point deliberately, of God's sovereignty, God's overruling power, that even in the despair which they were living, God was still touching their lives. And then as we, as we go through chapter 2, we learn a little bit more about what uh, Ruth was doing in the fields and how she was viewed by Boaz. And this is really important for us as we go into chapter 3 because we start to see how Boaz views Ruth. Um, and, he, and we see in, in chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us he has noticed her. In chapter 2, verse 9, he has protected her. In, in, in verse 18, he's given generously. He's given her far more than she would deserve gleaning the fields. In verse 11, he knows what she has done. He knows that this is Ruth the Moabite who has come back to Bethlehem with, with Naomi and committed herself uh, to Naomi. And in, in verse 12, he actually prays for her redemption. He prays um, that the, the Lord would reward her as she comes under his wings. And even in verse 14, he invites Ruth to come and eat at the table with him. So we see this, um, this uh, interaction between Boaz and Ruth here in chapter 2, as Boaz recognizes all these great and noble uh, characteristics of Ruth. And the, the author leaves us at the end of chapter 2 with a, with a really simple statement that uh, after that, she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, I did think about making some wisecracks about mother-in-laws, but I thought that would be a bit too dangerous, so um, I've chosen not to. Um, but why does the author reiterate that Ruth has chosen to live with her mother-in-law? Let's just stick it at the end of the, end of the chapter here. And I think it's, again, just emphasizing this character of Ruth this character of Ruth, which we saw when she declared her allegiance to Naomi, we see that same character of Ruth here that the author's emphasizing. She went and lived with her mother-in-law. 
She cared for her. She looked after her. She gleaned the crop. Her mother-in-law, who was bitter and in despair and felt the Lord's hand had turned against her. And so then, as we come into chapter 3, you can breathe a sigh of relief. We're getting to chapter 3. And I'd ask you, actually, I'd encourage you just to pick up your Bibles or your phones, whichever you're using, and just just have chapter 3 open as as we talk through it. Because... Um, because we see here at the, at the beginning of chapter 3, we see Ruth and Naomi kind of moving into action mode. So they've been in, 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 uh, in the mode of uh, moving to Bethlehem. They've been gleaning. The harvest has come to an end. And now we see Ruth and Naomi moving into action mode. They are making a plan. And, Ruth and, and Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. And they've, they've been praying. We see, we see examples of prayers through the previous chapters, not necessarily written as they prayed, but the, the, the expressions which are being given. They've prayed. They've thought about it. But now they're taking action. And just a little pause for a second there in terms of the model of prayer. Yes, it's a godly model of prayer, which we see throughout the Bible. We don't just sit in our little circles and pray and pray and pray. We have to move to action as well, trusting in God's overruling sovereignty, his overruling control, that he will overrule decisions we make, but that we are, we are still called to step out in that faith. I mean, my little example of my marriage proposal, it didn't matter how much I prayed and asked God that he would do it for me, I still had to uh, get on with it. I still had to make that step. And we see here that um, Naomi and Ruth are making that step. And Ruth is thrust into what have, must have been that extremely nerve-wracking and scary moment. So let's have a look through it. Prepare yourself. That's what she does, first of all. Wash and perfu- perfume yourself. Put on your best clothes. I think we can only understand this as make yourself attractive, can't we? Make yourself attractive to Boaz. And then go to the threshing floor. Now, that's not a small undertaking, is it, for a, for a woman on her own, a young woman on her own. This is a place outside of a city where the men have worked all day, separating the kernels of barley from the chaff. It's hot work. It's a masculine environment. It's undoubtedly quite a, a risky environment for a young woman on her own. And then it says, wait for them to finish eating and drinking. That has, that has um, echoes, doesn't it, of some of the other stuff we've heard in the Old Testament. Things like Lot, where Lot's daughters got him drunk and seduced him to be able to produce offspring from their own father. And there's a little bit of an echo there, isn't there, of Lot. Wait for them to finish eating and drinking. And then she has to hang around on the periphery. So she's on the periphery of this threshing floor, waiting to see where Boaz decides to lie down. Which sheaves of corn he's going to lie down against. Amongst all the people and in all the dark, she needs to know where Boaz is. And in the dark, can you imagine her tiptoeing around the sheaves of corn? Tiptoeing over the lying bodies, trying to make sure she doesn't stand on someone, trying to make sure she doesn't choose to lie down next to the wrong person. She's got to find Boaz there in the dark. 
And then she lies down next to him, uncovering his feet, or, as can be translated also, uncovering his legs, and then waits for him to wake up in the dead of night. Can you just imagine? <laughs> can you just imagine that? I can, if you can try and picture it, I think, wow, this is a bit of an undercover mission, isn't it? I almost want to sing the Mission Impossible theme tune, but I'm not going to do that for the same reason Bill didn't sing. <laughs> um, and then she sits and she waits, and she waits for him, and then he wakes up, we're told. He wakes up, perhaps he's startled, perhaps he's a little bit bleary-eyed, trying to work out if he's dreaming or not, perhaps peering into the darkness. And what is this? There's a, there's a woman lying at my feet. I don't remember that. And he says to Ruth, who are you? Who are you, Ruth? There's a lot in a name, isn't there? He says to her, identify yourself. And she says, I am your servant, Ruth. And at which point I highlight, she then deviates from her mother-in-law's instructions. Because her mother-in-law said, do as he tells you. Ruth says, I am your servant, Ruth. And she follows that by, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. What does it mean to spread the corner of your garment over me? Does it mean I'm cold? Please, can you share your blanket with me? Does it mean, please, can I climb into your bed with you? Is it seductive? I don't think it is, because when we look in other parts of the Old Testament, and in particular in Ezekiel, we see this exact same, same phrase. In Ezekiel, um, God's, God says to Israel, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Ezekiel chapter 16. So we've got an example of exactly the same phrase in Ezekiel there, where God is talking to Israel and making that covenant relationship with Israel, making that marriage um, with Israel. So I think that is actually pointing us towards what this phrase, spread the corner of your garment over me, means. And then Ruth follows that up because he is a kinsman redeemer. And for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure most of you do know, but the kinsman redeemer was a requirement for a male relative to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble or danger. So Ruth and Naomi were, um, were in danger, they were in poverty, they were in despair. And so there was a requirement on their close male relatives to take them under their wing and be their protector and take them um, in marriage. And so this is very much Ruth saying to Boaz, please, will you marry me? That's what this is here. This is Ruth asking Boaz, will he marry her? And this is perhaps the climax of her bravery. This is the point where she's been having to get to, to be able to make this proposition. And I think Boaz's response to her is really interesting. If you look down in verse 10, he says to her, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He doesn't say, what do you mean about spreading that garment over me? He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Now, what is the kindness? 
which she showed earlier? Well, I think when we look back to chapters 1 and 2, which is why we zipped through them earlier, we see this kindness of Ruth making that commitment to, to care and, and stay with Naomi. We see that kindness of Ruth fulfilling the sort of Proverbs 31, the noble character of a wife, uh, f- um, living that out in the fields, gleaning the barley, working from uh, dawn till dusk to make ends meet. I think that's the kindness uh, that she showed earlier. And then Boaz says, and my kindness you're showing now is that you could actually be running after some younger men. Here I am, an old man Boaz. And you're choosing to come to me, to ask me to redeem you. You're asking me to take you um, as your wife. And the reason that you're doing that is because, because of the kinsman redeemer. Because of that, you can maintain the lineage of your family. You can honor your, your late husband, your late father-in-law. You can honor the line of Elimelech by asking me to be your kinsman redeemer. And so this is the kindness that Ruth is showing. She's sacrificing. Actually, she's giving up what she could have had, which was just going back to the Moabites, to her own people, or the young men, rich and poor, who are all around the field. And instead, she is choosing the redeemer route in order that her family and that her line can be redeemed. And what a brilliant uh, response to the, minute, to, the, to the young lady. Because in verse 11, what does um, Boaz says to her, say to her? He says, and now my daughter, don't be afraid. That's a phrase we hear in the Bible sometimes, isn't it? Don't be afraid. And very often it's don't be afraid because of the character of God, because of who God is, because of his sovereignty. Do not be afraid. Here, it's don't be afraid because all of the people know your character. They know that you're a woman of noble character. So Boaz says to her, do not be afraid. And just right in here, I want us to then pause for a moment. We've talked about Ruth quite a lot. Perhaps we could just think about Boaz for a moment as a character in this story. Because let's be clear, he wakes up in the middle of the night with a beautiful young lady lying next to him in the dark. As I mentioned before, not long before in the Old Testament, we hear stories of Lot and the horrific things which came from that. So this story could have turned out really, really differently, couldn't it? Ruth is putting herself at the mercy of a powerful and a rich man. And he uses his power for good. He makes a choice there in the middle of the night, despite living in an era which in the previous um, book of the Bible, in the end of Judges, were told was an era when everybody did just what they wanted to do. There was no king. So Boaz is living in an era where it's do what you want, do what you feel. And he made a decision to honor Ruth. And I think in our era era today, it's for what the, the Me Too movement, isn't it, which is unearthing myriads of examples of abuses of power by powerful men over women. How significant is this example of Boaz? And he went on to fulfill the kinsman redeemer role for Ruth and Naomi as well. And he didn't have to do that. It was a custom, but it wasn't a law. It wasn't legally enforceable. It was an era when people did what they wanted to do. So we can see lessons, I think, from the character of both Boaz and Ruth. 
But more than anything, more than anything, this passage is actually about redemption. Redemption is oozing through this passage. The kinsman redeemer uh, model. Ruth choosing to turn away from her youth and opportunities to be the price of redemption for Naomi and the family line. Boaz, the one of power and control, choosing to accept Ruth and redemption this grants to Naomi and her family line. And that is an illustration of the redemption that we as New Testament Christians know is fulfilled in Jesus. The message of redemption flies through the Bible. At the end of chapter 4, the lineage of Naomi and Ruth is, chased, is traced through to David, and we know that lineage from David goes on through into Jesus. So we can see the picture of redemption running all the way through the Bible, culminating in, in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life as a price of redemption. Now, I thought about, do we need an illustration to explain this? But we don't. We've just got one. It's the book of Ruth. We've just had a whole illustration of this redeeming. Of spread the corner of your garment over me. Enter into a long-term, permanent, covenant-style, committed relationship. This is what Jesus does for us on the cross. He enables us to move from living our lives separate to God to entering into that long-term relationship. In Romans chapter 3, we are told we are justified through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul tells us, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now, I suspect most of us here know that redemption. I don't know if there's any of us who don't know that redemption. If there are, today's an opportunity to find out more about that redemption. There'll be an opportunity to pray in a few minutes' time, and that is a great opportunity to accept and explore that redemption. But for those of us who have accepted that redemption, I want to offer you one more glimpse of Ruth and Naomi. At the beginning of the book of Ruth, we're introduced to Naomi as that person who is bitter, who has the hand of God against her, is in despair. She says, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Now have a look at the end of chapter 3 for me. Have a look in the last verse, in verse 17, as to what, what is said there. Ruth goes back to her, her mother-in-law, and she told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She was empty, and she had six measures of barley Return to her. There's an echo here in this book of Ruth between that phrase in, in chapter 1 and this phrase, phrase in chapter 3. So Naomi, who has spent the entire harvest sort of making ends meet, gleaning, eating the scraps which have been left over, has all of a sudden got a future, a future beyond the end of this harvest. And why is this significant for us? It's significant because we are in a similar position, I think. So, Ruth has had this encounter with Boaz, hasn't she? But it's not ended at the end of chapter 3, has it? There has been a promise. Boaz has said, I will redeem you. There is a promise of a full redemption to come to the line uh, of, of Naomi and Elimelech. But it hasn't been experienced at this point, has it? She's still waiting. She's still 
on tenterhooks. She's on the cusp of that redemption, but she hasn't yet experienced it. Yet in the graciousness of God, in the middle of that, Ruth is re, um, Naomi is refilled. Her cries of chapter one have been heard, and she's been refilled. And I think there is a parallel for us here, isn't there? As we think about the redemption we experience, we know that we are redeemed. We know that that is secure. We know that Jesus has dealt with our sin once and for all upon the cross. Yet we also know that there's a promise of more to come. There's a promise of the more to come which we're not quite living yet. If we jump to Revelation, we're reminded of the, the vision of what is to come. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And those beautiful words, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. So right now, we are living in the in-between, aren't we? We've got that to look forward, but we're in the world right now. We might not be part of it, but we're, we're in the world. And we're not immune from most difficulties of the, of the world. And I wonder if amongst us here today, some of us would empathize with Naomi, with Naomi's bitterness, with the stress and the overwhelmness which she felt. We might not articulate it in quite the same way. We might not articulate it as God has brought his hand against me. But maybe we're experiencing some of that bitterness. Maybe it's bitterness or sadness within the church for where we find ourselves today. We've had some difficult rides over the last couple of years, haven't we? Maybe it's disappointment with God for the life we find ourselves living. Maybe it's not the life we expected to live. Maybe it's not the, the life we wanted to live. Maybe it's hurt as we see illness, as we see people we love being ill. Maybe it's the destruction and death which we see in Ukraine and around the world where we are at the moment. Maybe it's just the burden of survival. Or maybe it's children who are struggling to, to live their lives in front of us. Or maybe it's the cost of living, which we're feeling the pressure on. I just ask you today, are we, are we any of us here, in that same sort of place where Naomi was, of being bitter or overwhelmed or saddened? Because I would like to say that in exactly the same way we see God's providence come on Ruth and going into the right field, on Naomi and Ruth for coming back at harvest time, for Naomi being filled by six uh, measures of barley at a time when she had nothing. We also have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I won't leave you on your own. If I go away, it is better for you because the advocate will come and be with you. A counselor will come to be with you. So I want to end this, this, uh, this message today really on that note. On that note of come, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, come amongst us here. And if any of you would like to be prayed for, I really feel that God would like to pray for people today, would like to minister to us. If we're feeling that bitterness, that sadness, that overwhelmness, that looking forward to what we know is to come, but what we're experiencing right now is quite hard 
to live through. I want to invite you as we sing, There is a Redeemer. As we sing, There is a Redeemer, I'd invite you just to come forward and be prayed for. I'd love to pray for you. Um, I'm sure there'll be other people who will come and pray as well. So if that's where you are today, please do take that opportunity um, as we sing, There is a Redeemer.